Hi, my name is Jay Raman, and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. I want to welcome you to another one of our Office of Education podcasts. Today's podcast is specifically one in a series that highlights some of the recent guidelines and white papers that have been compiled through the AUA's Science and Quality Council and the Guidelines Committee. Today's specific podcast is really talking about testis cancer and applying the guidelines to clinical practice. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to welcome uh, my uh, good friend, Scott Egner, uh, who is professor of urology at the University of Chicago. Um, he wanted to emphasize to me uh, not to extol all of his virtues so and keep it short. So uh, I'll say he's a urologic oncologist. His uh, clinical areas of interest and research are in um, uh, testis cancer, uh, as well as other urologic malignancies. And notably, he was the vice chair of the AUA's uh, testis cancer guidelines. And uh, it's really our uh, my pleasure and our, our benefit to have him here today. So Scott, welcome, and thank you so much for your time today. Jay, looking forward to it. I love talking testis cancer. Great. So, so I guess let's just start off and, and, you know, I'll ask you the really, you know, broad question, which is, you know, why does this matter and, and why uh, should our listeners keep uh, listening for the next 20 to 25 minutes? Yeah, the, the bird's eye view is it's obviously a rare cancer. There are often many options in the algorithm and management of these folks. There are absolutely times there are right and wrong answers. These typically young guys have a long lifespan. The cure rate should be extraordinarily high. And unfortunately, mismanagement happens when the wrong people are managing it or not referring to guidelines. So all those things together make it incredibly important to do these guys right. And, and maybe uh, tell me a little bit, um, the, the guidelines panel that you were on, um, what was sort of the composition of that? Was that was that just urologists? Was it sort of a, an amalgam of different specialties? Who, who was sort of the group that comprised this, this panel? Yeah, it was anyone and everyone that has an interest and knowledge set in testis cancer, which made it a, a rich group and you know, lively conversation and really proud of the group. I'm here basically representing them, but it was you know, Medonc, urologic oncologists, Radonc, uh, patient advocate, and uh, we put together a document we're all pretty proud of. And, and I think you, you sort of highlighted, you know, maybe one of the most important points, which is in general, these are really young, healthy men who have a very long um, and, and life expectancy and lifespan. So yeah, I don't want to dramatize it, but, but the stakes are high in that if, if you mismanage them, um, well, if you manage them properly, you've probably set them on the right path. And if you've mismanaged them, then unfortunately, you, you've probably put them in a position of, of an incredible burden of treatment. Is that, is that sort of an accurate statement? Yeah, to your point, I find it the single most gratifying disease to take care of for all the reasons you mentioned. And I do my absolute best to be an even keeled guy and not get worked up. But when someone shows up to my clinic and they've been mismanaged elsewhere and it may have long term implications for curate toxicity, even financial, I get all worked up and I and it, it just bothers me at my core as it does anyone who sees 
Sure. So let's um, let's maybe start talking about some of the nuts and bolts here, and and maybe take us through a little bit of uh, the basics. You know, maybe the diagnostic evaluation and 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 how you would look at sort of your your average testis cancer patient. Great use of nuts and bolts there, Dr. Raman. You know me, I'm full of full of parodies. <laughs> So th there's a lot of useful info in the guideline, and I would encourage you to read it because I think it's very high yield. But some of the big ticket items, which many of the audience knows but worth reemphasizing, any solid you know, vascularized mass in the testicle, particularly hypoechoic, is a germ cell tumor until proven otherwise. Anyone of an age group between 16 and even 60 with a retroperitoneal mass of unknown origin gets markers, a testis exam, and an ultrasound. So step one is timely and prompt diagnosis of these testis tumors. We still see a lot of guys that either on their own, their primary care doctor, or even urologists, you know, have a delayed time with antibiotics, follow-up visits, and um, it's important to, to nail these diagnoses. Now, once it's diagnosed, obviously, the three backbones that lead to all decisions are what is the cancer look like under the microscope? What do the markers show after the orchiectomy? And what does your staging evaluation show with your CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis and either in some form of chest imaging? All these guys should have a discussion of sperm banking and or a prosthesis and, uh, and everything kind of ebbs and flows from there. I would also emphasize these guys understandably are really scared when they find out about it. They're cruising through life and you find out you got cancer. I always do my best to start every conversation when I'm first meeting these guys. Remember these four words, this all ends well. And our cure rates are so darn high that um, that is almost entirely true. So uh, a lot of these patients come through, um, I think different mechanisms. I, I, I mean, in the ideal world, um, any patient with a, a testis mass is a urologist. And I think that in general occurs, but, but certainly those that come in with retroperitoneal masses, uh, they may see a host of different, you know, physicians, not just a urologist. Um, maybe your, your thoughts on, on who should, as you, these patients come into the system, I mean, I would imagine your thought and, and the, the dogma should be that urologists should be sort of guiding the care of these patients and first and foremost, and then obviously relying on our colleagues in medical oncology, radiation oncology to, to complement. How should we look at this as urologists in this disease space? Yeah, I share your thoughts and I'm a huge advocate and fan that urologists should be the proverbial quarterback and own this space, know the details, or refer to someone who does know the details or at least know the guidelines and the proper algorithms. It, it pains me somewhat to see that there are a lot of urologists out there that basically see their role as diagnosis, do the orchiectomy and ship them off to a medical oncologist. And it's a rare disease and a lot of medical oncologists don't see it regularly. And a lot of the mismanagement we see comes from medical oncologists. So I do think it's incredibly important for urologists to be front and center, absolutely it's a multidisciplinary disease and you work together as a team, but we should not be obviating our duty to, to help these guys out. 
So maybe one practical question as, as these patients come into your practice is uh, obviously young guy with a testis mass um, and, and obviously risk of testis cancer or suspected testis cancer. How do you sort of bring in the, the, con the conversation about banking, but, and maybe that's number one, but also prosthesis? Because I'm sure most of them maybe are not really thinking about banking or prosthesis when they walk into the office, they're thinking, geez, I, I might have testicular cancer. How do you, how do you weave that in when, and avoid sort of the, you know, we're going like gangbusters, we've got to get the cancer out, but balancing sort of the future, you know, the, the future expectations there. Yeah, a couple of comments there. There was an old adage, not particularly accurate. Don't let the sun set on a testis cancer. There's no immediate urgency to it. Do it in a timely fashion, but sometimes if you tell them you got to do it right away, it just adds to the anxiety and that's unnecessary we talk about the long-term cure rates we talk about the steps along the way provide reassurance but i do think it's incredibly important to talk about sperm banking there's some varying opinions amongst specialists and experts i personally recommend sperm banking even before the orchiectomy if not shortly after and if there's even a, a whim of a thought that they may want to naturally have children in the future, I do emphasize to them that almost all guys can naturally, I shouldn't say almost all, the, the majority uh, can have children naturally after treatment for testis cancer, but it's such an important insurance policy. And as far as prosthesis go, we do get into some of the nitty gritty of, you know, the, the essence of a prosthesis. Obviously there's no function to it. There's a, it's often for cosmetic or psychologic purposes and they ultimately decide and they let me know on the day of surgery. So I, I, you spoke a few minutes ago that that obviously some of the critical components of the initial evaluation is obviously appropriate imaging uh, and tumor markers, and then you you mentioned tissue. I mean, tissue is really going to be sort of uh, your driver in how these algorithms play out. So maybe walk us through that a little bit when when you look at the different types of you know testis cancers. And, and broadly speaking, you know, how, how you look through the different algorithms for managing maybe seminomas versus non-seminomas and whatnot. Yeah, there's obviously an incredible amount of nuance and detail that are important to either know or refer to. But in general, 95% of testicular cancers are germ cell origin, almost evenly split between seminoma and non-seminoma, slightly more likely to have a seminoma early stage seminoma, stage one, no evidence of metastasis. Almost all experts recommend routine surveillance without any adjuvant therapy, unless they're non-compliant or they're moving to some remote location overseas. You know, early retroperitoneal disease, the standard would be radiation therapy, though there's emerging data suggesting RPLND might have a role. Bulkier retroperitoneal disease or disease above the diaphragm is chemotherapy. And that's kind of the, you know, initial management paradigm. Non-seminoma is a little bit more complicated, but not terribly. So for stage one, non-seminoma, there's three options. All roads lead to 99% long-term cure rate. A lot of experts recommend absolutely routine surveillance for all comers stage one, non-risk adapted. There are other folks who say if you have some risk factors and you may have a 40, 50% chance of having disease recurrence, you should have a discussion of adjuvant therapy with either BEP or with uh, RPLND. Um, early stage retroperitoneal disease should favor surgery 
for really localized, you know, solitary node less than two or three centimeters in a landing zone, although chemotherapy is perfectly appropriate in that setting. And that's a long discussion. Um, bulkier disease in the retroperitoneum or elsewhere, um, it's really important to know the risk stratification for metastatic disease and the IGCCCG. And I think urologists should know about it if you manage this space, but they need you know, chemotherapy, either EP times four, BEP times three, or BEP times four. So I, I think one of the, the, the key things that you talked about was um, certainly the importance of tumor markers, both at uh, the initial diagnostic setting, but then certainly um, after orchiectomy. And just practically speaking, uh, you see a patient back after you've had your, your orchiectomy. At what point do you start looking at their tumor markers and, and obviously looking at, okay, normalization to help you guide your algorithms? Yeah, great question, an important one. For the trainees that are listening, when you get asked about half-lives of AFP and HCG, it's just not to torture you. It has distinct clinical relevance, and the half-life of HCG is about 24 to 36 hours. The half-life of AFP is five to seven days, and it's important to track those to see where they nadir. Obviously, if they're rising, you don't have to keep tracking it, but it's really important to know because it fits into your algorithm are they going to need chemotherapy, potentially surveillance, potentially, you know, other forms of therapy? So know that and check it. A, a bit of a pearl, but it does come up, is that there are folks that just live at a mildly elevated, perfectly stable AFP that are in the teens or even low 20s. And I've seen that um, probably 10 times in my life. And so you don't go chasing, you know, a mildly elevated, stable AFP, you, you do your staging evaluation, but oftentimes people just live there. So uh, I'm going to maybe ask you about two scenarios and, and uh, I can't remember, uh, we haven't covered it yet, but if we're going to, if, if this is something that you were going to cover later, I apologize for, for jumping on it out of the gate. But the two scenarios that I think um, I would ask you about is, um, what do you do with this patient that theoretically comes into your practice who has had a scrotal orchiectomy for testis cancer? And, and we just talked about the algorithms. You outlined very clearly non-seminomous, seminomous. But what do you do if you have a patient who has the pathology but had a scrotal orchiectomy? Um, does your management change at all? Do you think about this patient any differently? Do you recommend theoretically a different approach? Historically, the teaching was they may need an excision of their scar. You may need to look in their inguinal region or even treat their inguinal region. Thankfully, data exists that unless there's extenuating factors, you don't really have to do anything differently. And so they're in general, they're managed just like they had an inguinal orchiectomy. You do have to remember they still have their cord in place, which sometimes has cancer cells in there. And that would be a situation I think it would be important to lean on a colleague that has some expertise in this space and either just for advice and you continue managing the patient or get it to someone who has some knowledge of the of the literature and how to take care of those folks and then maybe the the other scenario i'd ask you about and certainly one that i i've seen in my practice is um, a patient theoretically who has not uh, seen a urologist right out of the gate who has a, a bulky retroperitoneal mass and had a a percutaneous biopsy of this mass as part of the initial algorithm. And then, oh, by the way, it's come back now as a germ cell tumor. 
do you approach those patients who have theoretically had some, you know, if you want to call it quote unquote violation just through this percutaneous approach or, or do you think about them the same way um, uh, as, as your index sort of testis cancer patient? Yeah, I saw one of those patients very recently who had a laparoscopic biopsy of a retroperitoneal mass. And in general, you know, even though there's a delay in them getting timely and appropriate care, you don't really do anything differently unless maybe there was spillage within the retroperitoneum. But otherwise, you kind of start from scratch and do all the basics and, and get them on track. So uh, I think what you just said, you know, brings us to sort of the, some of the questions that, that really come up, which is where, I don't want to call them errors, but where, where can there be mistakes in the evaluation of these patients? And, and you talked briefly about, you know, sort of a delayed or maybe even a, a delayed diagnosis due to a misdiagnosis. Um, talk to us a little bit about, about that, this whole concept of the delayed diagnosis in these patients and, and what does delayed mean? Uh, for you? Yeah, let's talk about a couple things in that space. We don't have time to take a deeper dive into them, but any delay in diagnosis has the potential to lead to an increased burden of therapy down the road, depending on how long they've been delayed. You know, some people get antibiotics, some people just never get to a urologist to have a timely orchiectomy. Some people are getting serial ultrasounds of their testicles. Some people, there's all sorts of crazy situations. Um, that retroperitoneal mass in an in a age population we talked about already. Other common mistakes, and, and there's a group of us who wrote a paper on this in our experiences from three centers, is getting inappropriate chemotherapy, either too little or too much, and those have different implications. In general, there's almost no role for PET scans in testis cancer. And to me, it's always a canary in the coal mine if someone's ordering PET scans that maybe they shouldn't be managing the disease. Um, there's also, you know, the way RPLNDs are done. Uh, we don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but there's different templates, many of them which are sensible in certain situations, but it's not a nerve plucking. It's not a sampling. It's not a resection of the mass. You're in there to cure them and hopefully never see the disease again in their lifetime. And obviously there's nerve sparing that's important. And so those are some of the kind of more common, you know, mismanagement items that, that come up. Sure. Um, maybe what, a few questions I'll ask you on that front is, and, and you know, I, I think anytime you talk about uh, minimally invasive versus open, it's a sort of a Pandora's box. And, and, um, and in my mind, um, I, I think it's a difficult discussion to have because I think it ultimately comes down to uh, not always approach, but provided you're doing the right operation, uh, it's less predicated on uh, the approach that you do. So the question I would maybe ask you is less on technique, but a little bit more on uh, the concept of um, this bilateral template RPLNDs versus um, uh, sort of the, the, the hockey stick configuration. Um, in your practice in general, and understanding everyone's practice is a little bit different, but when you have these patients that you're taking for a retroperitoneal node dissection, um, nerve sparing is important. Do you, do, do you in your practice do a bilateral nerve sparing or do you sort of tailor it to the disease that the patient has and it, it may vary from one to the next? Yeah, a lot to unpack there. So in general, you know, a post-chemotherapy RPLND is always a full bilateral. 
there are some data from very experienced settings where a relatively small percentage of patients would be reasonable and appropriate to do a very thorough and complete modified template. And I won't get into the details here. You're always emphasizing the cancer curate is number one, but goal number one B is to preserve anti-grade ejaculation if that's a priority for the patient. I do my best to estimate that likelihood for the patient prior to surgery based on the scan. You have a pretty good idea. And in someone I'm nerve sparing, the right-sided nerve sparing, if it goes smoothly and you've got the sympathetic chain, some post-sympathetic efferents in the hypogastric plexus, I don't bother nerve sparing on the left side. If there are other situations, then I would do bilateral or do an only left-sided nerve sparing. As far as robotic versus open, I suspect you and I are in agreement on this. There's a, it's the third rail of, you know, a lot of surgeries that we do, and there's a lot of strong opinions on both sides. I thought the committee that wrote the guideline did a very tactful and appropriate job of it, and you can look in the guideline. The bottom line is these guys need high-quality surgery by people who know what they're doing, and if you know what you're doing, in appropriate situations, there are settings where robotic are open are both appropriate. I mean, I think that last point really ties into your, your one of the initial things you said, which is uh, that this disease really should be managed by not just urologists, but, but a team of persons that are familiar with the disease, whether that's surgical approach for RPLND, whether that's uh, the role of imaging, for example, or, or lack of, you know, uh, appropriate imaging, whether that is uh, appropriate chemotherapy for these patients. It's, it's very clear from this conversation that um, there are multiple steps along the way where low, you know, low volume clinicians who don't manage this disease a lot can misstep on, on, on the different algorithms. Is that, is that sort of an accurate statement? Sing it from the rooftops, and that's the purpose of the guideline and podcasts like this is to dis disseminate that information. And it can often sound admittedly self-serving for people that have higher volume practices. That is not what I'm saying. If you see testis cancer you know, intermittently and you're comfortable and you know it or you're referring to the algorithm and you're taking great care of these guys, go for it. Absolutely. But from a patient-centered approach, these guys have a long runway of lifetime and they deserve nothing but the best care. So in the last few minutes, we're, we're gonna touch base on a, a few you know, pearls. The first is, uh, what do you do with these small testis masses here? Right? We all see this, that someone has an ultrasound, it's a small testis mass, and, um, and everyone's kind of looking at each other saying, geez, you know, is this, do we really need to do an orchiectomy in this case, especially if the markers are, for example, negative? How do you, how do you approach these and, and what's your imaging frequency and how do you counsel the patients? Yeah, uh, really important. And you, know, you, you hit the nail on the head that the markers have to be normal. If they have elevated markers and no other reasons for false positives, then they have a testis cancer until proven otherwise. And that, you know, that testicle has to come out you know, if they have a contralateral testicle. Uh, but as far as these small testis masses, it's interesting. Some of the smaller masses, you know, less than a centimeter, less than two centimeters, you know, 20, 30% of them can be benign. And one of the pearls in the guidelines is that, you know, getting another image in six to eight weeks with markers and an exam, you'll save some guys an unnecessary orchiectomy. And there are very rare, but benign growths in the testicle. There are some things that jump out. There's these surface tunica albuginea cysts, which don't have blood flow. You can monitor those. Those are rare. 
There's the onion skinning that you sometimes see on an ultrasound, and that's an epidermoid cyst. If you see wedge-shaped um, abnormalities, sometimes it's an infarct or an infection. So um, if it's equivocal and the patient's compliant, one of the important things in the guidelines is don't necessarily race into something. It's really unlikely to change their long-term outcome, and it's okay to reevaluate in you know six, eight weeks or so. And how do you, in your practice, factor in the concept of the partial orchiectomy? You have a small lesion. Let's just outline the case you just you discussed here. But but the imaging is such that you say, okay, look, this this person does need a surgical operation. This does the partial orchiectomy fit into your practice in any way? And what scenarios do you look at? The answer is yes, but it's still pretty rare. Even at really high volume centers above and beyond what I see, partial, partial orchiectomies happen, but they're admittedly rare. There are a lot of unique scenarios where it's on the table as an option. Obviously, if it's a solitary testicle, if they have bilateral you know, tumors, um, the goal is, and, and the hope would be that they can either you know, naturally produce sperm if it's not truly a testis cancer once you finally remove it, or they've banked sperm. And if it is a testis cancer and you've done a partial archaeectomy, the key if you do a partial archaeectomy is you want to sample some normal parenchyma. At the same time, you want your best pathologist there and knowing ahead of time. And, you know, if there is you know, precancerous areas there, germ cell neoplasia in situ or intratubular germ cell neoplasia, one's the current name, one's the former name. Um, this is a really long discussion with patients. There's options of a completion orchiectomy. There is also an option of trying to preserve the testicle, having some adjuvant radiation therapy for 14 to 18 gray to that testicle that will kill spermatogenesis. But about two thirds of the guys can have endogenous testosterone production and not need supplementation. Go, if, you're, if you encounter this, go to the guidelines. We did a, a, a very thorough job of explaining the pros and cons of all those varied approaches. And that's where you get comfy in the clinic with the guy and really have a heart to heart. So what about markers? We've, we've talked about them at various different points here. And, and uh, you covered a little bit that, that obviously markers are critical both uh, before any intervention to guideline, to, to guide the management after orchiectomy. Um, any other pearls that we should walk away from with regards to markers beyond those two, those two scenarios? I would say always check them before an orchiectomy, know the half-lives as we mentioned, know the rare potential false positives. We talked about some guys living with a mildly elevated AFP. There's also foregut tumors or obviously liver pathology that can lead to an elevated AFP. There are very rare situations where someone's hypogonadal and they can have a falsely elevated HCG. You can do a testosterone suppression test in that setting. Um, in general, although there's rare exceptions, elevated and rising markers almost always is chemotherapy. There are situations such as a very poorly coined desperation RPLND where they've exhausted all their chemo options where you might, and they're surgically resectable where you might do an RPLD, there are rare cystic masses in the retroperitoneum with a mildly elevated marker where you might do surgery, but in general, elevated and rising markers, chemotherapy or salvage chemotherapy. And then lastly, I'd be remiss if I didn't say all of us in this space are really excited about the emerging data on microRNAs, 371. There's a lot of data that suggests it outperforms our traditional markers. They're cheap, easy blood tests. There's 
um, an exciting SWOG trial that'll help answer a lot of these questions. Most of us believe it will absolutely transform our management of testis cancer. Unfortunately, the common ones don't pick up teratoma, um, but um, stay tuned and, uh, and pay attention to the microRNA space. It's funny, after many, many years of the markers just being AFP, LDH, and beta HCG, maybe we're going to see some new additions to this uh, uh, this array. Um, what about the, the the small retroperitoneal masses? Yeah, the you know maybe sub centimeter uh, or maybe just up to a centimeter. Um, how do you look at that? Do you factor in landing zone for these tumors, and and what is your decision process there? Yeah, very well said. And there's a lot of uh, analogies to the small testis mass, a very small retroperitoneal mass. Rarely is there urgency. Sometimes there's absolute clarity on what they need done and you do it. But if there's ambiguity, waiting six to eight weeks and restaging them and getting another set of markers is the smart thing to do. And sometimes you can minimize the burden of therapy. I have a whole set of case files on you know, small retroperitoneal masses that re-imaged and they went away and they were there for some other reason. <laughs> the other key thing which you mentioned is knowing where in the retroperitoneum based on the laterality of their primary. There's no absolute definitive landing zone, but in general, left-sided tumors go to the para-aortic on the left side of the aorta, sometimes ipsilateral iliac. If you see a small node over on the right side of the cava and they've had no other previous surgery, don't go jumping into that. And right-sided, in general, go to the interaortal cable. Um, there are always exceptions, but uh, you always take that into account as well in deciding whether therapy or, or a slow playing it. Scott, any other uh, final take-home points that you think the audience should uh, to know about uh, from our conversation today? Uh, the only other pearl I would mention that covers a lot of the topics we've uh, talked about kind of common mismanagement, uh, small retroperitoneal masses. And this is more often seen as uh, quote unquote mistakes by medical oncologists, but a guy at diagnosis has a bulky retroperitoneal mass. It's a non-seminoma. They pr appropriately get chemotherapy. Their markers normalize. The retroperitoneal mass goes down dramatically. Um, until uh, more data comes out, any residual retroperitoneal mass greater than one centimeter on axial imaging after induction chemo for non-seminoma warrants an RPLND. And um, unfortunately, we still see guys where, oh, you've had a dramatic response. Their medical oncologist says, we're just going to follow things and um, things can either go okay or go awry in that situation. No, that's great. That's a, that's a great point. Well, Scott, first of all, I really want to thank you. I, this, this was a great conversation. I, I think uh, for those that are interested in the audience, it's clear that the guideline is, uh, it's not only contemporary, but I think it's its very comprehensive, very well written, and uh, certainly goes into greater detail on some of the material that we've covered today. Um, certainly for more information, please visit aua.org slash university. And uh, Scott, uh, really my pleasure doing this with you. And, and I certainly hope that you and I can see each other in person sometime soon. The feelings mutual, Jay. Take care.